Our minds are so powerful that what we focus on reverberates through every aspect of our lives. So why not see what happens when we put our attention on all the good things people are doing? Join me for the good with Teresa G as we start a ripple effect by focusing on all the greatness in the world. Kareen Irby has a bachelor's degree in environmental science from Queen's University and has over 300 hours of experience in permaculture design. She obtained a permaculture design certificate from the Taranaki Environment Center in New Zealand and completed an advanced certificate of the, at the Permaculture Research Institute of Australia. Kareen is the owner and founder of the U.S. branch of Broken Grounds, and in addition to consulting in edible garden design, she holds workshops on permaculture, composting, and gardening. She also acts as a senior advisor for Good to, Chi- Good to China's Urban Farming Initiative in Shanghai, China. Welcome, Kareen. Thank you so much for having me, Teresa. I'm excited to be on your podcast. Well, we're excited to have you. Something that you say is um, all the world's problems can be solved in a garden. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and that's actually a quote uh, from one of my teachers, Jeff Lawton. Uh, he, I went and took an advanced permaculture training with him in Australia, and he used that quote uh, fairly often. And the idea behind that is that, you know, gardening is something that connects us to the land. It connects us to the food. Uh, and allows us to slow down. And so by doing all of those things, right, those are some of the major issues um, that are at fault in our world. Um, the, the fact that we don't slow down, um, that we have forgotten where our food comes from, that we've been, become disconnected from natural systems. So it's just a very simplified way of, of asking people to reconnect uh, to, to source to food, and to where they came from and to the place that they came from. That's beautiful. Uh, and that's really important right now, and it's been important always, but I think right now it's, it's uh, even more important because we have so much access to so much technology. So we're easily jumping around all over the place. Before we were, we were centered and focused where we stood. You know, we didn't have all these things that distracted us to, you know, all different countries and different times and all these things. Yeah, and I think that that's something that I'm seeing right now in society. And I've actually been thinking a lot about in this digital age. You know, there's no doubt that digital technology has brought us very positive things. It's allowing me and you to have this discussion. Uh, it's allowing a lot of global connections between people. Um, but I think we have forgotten um, that we can do so much more than that, um, that our hands can do so much more than that, uh, that they can do more than text and type and be on a phone, right? That we can actually plant seeds, we can actually grow food, we can actually create community. And what digital technology has gotten us away from is this connection to place and to people, right? That we can we can connect online for sure, right? But that's not necessarily the definition of community. The community is where you live and the geography that you're in and that the people that you know, um, that's what creates community. And we're losing a lot of that. Um, 
Well, and it's great because you are sort of bringing us back to that. A lot of the things you do and you teach are bringing people back to the community. And so let's go Absolutely. back to where, when you were a, just a young little girl, um, and you talk about how your mom was a homemaking extraordinaire. How did it, how did your mom being this homemaking extraordinaire affect you and this passion you have as an adult? Right. I think like so many other kids growing up, right, you don't see the benefit of what your mom does necessarily at the time. And it's not, you know, my mom was, uh, she had a huge garden. Uh, We had a huge garden growing up. uh, And we, she would can a lot of food. She would make pasta. We would get these five gallon tubs of uh, honey from a local farmer. Uh, so a lot of homemade food and she would make homemade bread. She still does, you know, um, 45, 50 years on. Uh, and so I grew up with those values. Uh, but I think as a child, you grow up with those values and they're, they're more like rules rather than values that you live by. Uh, and only in my adulthood did I come back to understanding what she was trying to do. Uh, you know, we would shop at thrift stores. We would reuse uh, plastic bags. We would use cloth bags to take our lunches to school. And all of those things came from a place from her, of her background and where she came from and of being, and of being frugal. Right. Um, And also, you know, I would ask her, you know, why did she have a garden when we were growing up? And partly it was economics. Uh, It was that the food was cheaper that way. And then, of course, that it tasted better. Uh, So I think that just having those memories of walking through our raspberry patch or having apple trees growing up or having a garden growing up um, instilled in me a sense of connection to, to, to land and to food and to good food. Oh, and there's nothing like, you know, going out into the garden and just eat, you know, my daughter just loves to go out in the garden and pick the peas. She'll stand there. It's complete joy for her. <laughs> you know, just to be right. Off of- uh, out of the garden and eating them. It's just her highlight in the day. And so, um, and, and fresh bread. It's been a while since I've had fresh bread, but that is like, you know, soul food. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's, you know, that's something that we've lost is this, the simple joys um, of living, of being human beings, right. Of being able to make something uh, with our own hands like bread and then eating it or being able to plant a seed and then having, you know, literally tasting the fruit of that labor. And we've lost that in um, the, the movies and films and Facebook and whatever else um, that, that distracts us from the more, the simplicity of, of uh, daily living and meeting our own needs. It sounds like you were born sort of with your heart wide open. Um, with a sort of a need to focus on a more heart-centered community and humanity. And you started recognizing the problems that were going around, going on around you and in the world at a very young age. Yes. I, I was told very early on that I was a very sensitive child. You know, that was that whole, you know, my parents saying, don't be so sensitive. And I think (laughs) that that, that, you know, I think a lot of people who are more empathetic, uh, who are more, you know, heart wide open, um, get that message 
um, from others, right? That we aren't supposed to be so connected um, to maybe the problems in the world and we shouldn't be so serious about what's happening in the world. And yeah, in my early teens, I would rage, you know, I'd read this, I read Gorillas in the Mist, you know, by Diane Fossey or books by Jane Goodall and just read about the reality of people putting profit over um, over animals or profit over habitat. Uh, and just the greed that I saw in that uh, was inexplicable to me or made me very angry. Um, and, and, you know, I, th- there's no, you know, you go along in your life and you take all these twists and turns in your life. And then only in looking back, do you realize that you were taking an actual pathway towards where you are today, right? It's not that, that you'd had charted that course for yourself, but there's no, um, I'm not surprised that I'm doing what I'm doing today. Um, because who I inherently am as a person. Right, right. It's all just building up to, you know, whatever is next. Right, exactly. And you just take the next best step, sorry, you just take the next best step, you know, in your life. Totally, I totally get it. Because I was, you know, I was one of those kids that, saw the orphans on like the TV or something on the uh, commercials. And I like went in and signed up to sponsor, you know, like 10 kids at, I don't know. And uh, my mom gets these mailings and she's like, what, why, why is this happening? (laughs) (laughs) Because we have to save the world, mom, because she's like, you could save the world when you're making money. So, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) But no, I totally relate to that. Um, and so in your 20s, you spent a year in Guatemala as a human rights observer. What was that experience? Yes. I mean, that was that was fairly eye-opening. I think, you know, in your early 20s, you're quite the idealist. And, and, and a lot of us, you know, who have the privilege want to see more of the world. And, uh, you know, part of that was wanting to learn Spanish to be able to reconnect with, um, you know, a good portion of the planet, Spanish-speaking part of the planet. Um, And I had originally gone down to Guatemala to learn Spanish um, for a couple months. And then I traveled in Latin America for four months after that. And I was changed by that experience, as I'm sure a lot of people are when they go to uh, the global south, right? Or what some people call the developing countries, and they see... um, the poverty that exists there uh, and um, the privilege, and then it's reflected back to them, the privilege um, that they have if they come from a Western country. Uh, And also I was affected, of course, by the U.S. involvement in the Guatemalan Civil War. Uh, the, the, The funds that came from our taxpayer dollars to support a civil war that was essentially um, a genocide against indigenous people. Um, and while I was there, though, that, of course, was tough, right, um, to be, to have that understanding. Of course, I was there after the war, after the peace accords were signed, though it was tough to have that understanding of the U.S. involvement. It was also tough to then see um, that a lot of these families who had been subsistence farmers um, before the war or even you know, in part during the war, we're now having to work on sugar cane plantations. We're now having to work 
on plantations um, that were making products for export and that they were losing this whole subsistence lifestyle and kind of being pushed into uh, this globalized economy. Uh, and again, all for the fact that we can then have bananas or avocados or, you know, whatever for fairly cheap in our grocery stores in the U.S. So there was this larger, more insidious war going on um, after the actual physical uh, civil war. And that was basically a war against the poor where... Um, where this wealth disparity between the have and have nots continues to widen. And when you worked with, you observed there, what mm-hmm. was their, what was their thoughts about it? Were they recognizing that this was happening or did they see it as yeah. opportunity or? You know, it, it depends on who you talk to, but definitely right. a lot of people saw it as exploitation. You know, I think a lot a lot of people who who work on you, you can't not if you're working on a sugar plant, cane plantation and working you know I don't know ten twelve hours a day in the heat and uh, being paid very little for what you uh, do I I think and and with no of course no benefits. No health insurance, no, no, nothing, right? Right. So I think you know. I remember talking to people there and them fully understanding that um, they were being taken advantage of. Um, and those are you know people within the agricultural realm. Now I'm not saying there are other um, places where you have coffee farmers that are working, uh, possibly with an organization like Equal Exchange or something like that that are paid a fair wage for what they do. Um, and that's something a bit different. Uh, so I think that the, it it, it ranges ranges in terms of this um, global economy that we're in, in terms of the the way that agricultural workers are treated. Uh, but for the most part, um, the global economy is out of scale, uh, and that's a lot of what I teach in permaculture: is this whole idea that our global economy is out of scale, our agriculture is out of scale, our banking system is out of scale. When things get so large and they're so out of scale like that, that's where exploitation inevitably happens, right? Um, and so I think there's there's a range of how people feel about um, situations like that. Some people are maybe happy for the job, but I think within it, there's an understanding that it's a it's a lot of hard work, um, and whether they're paid fairly for it um, is up for debate. And let's talk about: Did you observe when you were there um, just the joy of simple things? The people finding joy in simple in simple things, and really just well, you know appreciating small things that. You know, here in the U.S., we take for granted for. I'm not sure if it's enjoying the simple things, but I think it's recog- what I noticed in living there is that the sense of family and community is much stronger. Right, you live with your not only your immediate family members, but maybe your in-laws and your cousins and everyone lives close by. And I think that is also something that was lost 
has been lost in our culture of, you know, I was encouraged as a young person to move away for university, right? There's no question that I was going to move away and move elsewhere and away from my parents. Um, And as a result, you know, I live in a different state than my parents. My sister lives in Germany. We see each other maybe twice a year. And um, I feel like that there's something that's lost there uh, in terms of our so-called progress in the Western world of going out and um, getting a job and being successful, right? Um, And then looking at uh, people in these communities that live with their families where the children get access to the wisdom of their elders um, and have an understanding of an intergenerational existence. Whereas for us, we go off to university and we spend 24-7 with people who are plus or minus two or three years older than us or younger than us. Uh, Not until we maybe get out into the workforce do we actually have an interface with more, more people than that on a regular basis. And, and that, I think, you lose perspective there. Um, you know, again, it's that homogenous thinking that everyone in their 20s is kind of, you know, at least say in the Western world or, or wherever you may be going to university, they're kind of have the same point of view, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. a lot of them, because we're all going through the same thing at once. But if you live intergenerationally, then you have a sense of perspective of where you are in your life and where you're going. Um, and I think that's something that's been lost. And that was something that I appreciated a lot in these, you know, indigenous communities uh, that were exceptionally poor, um, that had been through hell with the, uh, the Civil War, um, but that kept and stuck together. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I, I just noticed, you know, I'm, I've traveled a lot in uh, mm-hmm. third world countries and stuff like that. And one thing that always captures my heart, like uh, specifically right now, I'm thinking about when I was walking through um, a cardboard hut village in South Africa, where they share, mm. you know, they share one uh, toilet for probably, I don't know, 70 families and one water, wow. 70 families, and they're just cardboard boxes. And, you know, if, after the rain, you walk through those streets and there's flies and it's just, it's just for me coming from complete, um, you know, from the U S and just, I, it's just amazing to me what they're living in. Yet the kids will be running through the streets with no shoes on and, um, and they have this look in their eye of just complete joy and happiness and contentment. Mm. And I always say, I say to my husband, I say, like, you don't ever, you don't really see that look in American children ever. It, it doesn't matter right. if you, it's Christmas morning or, and it doesn't matter because they have this expectation, these, all of this stuff that they're constantly getting, um, you know, they're always getting exposed to more and more and more. So mm-hmm. this look in these little children's eyes, I just want, I, I carry that in my heart always because that's where I want to get back to. Not the look of deprivation, but the look right. of just joyfully being on this planet, you know, the joy of life. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, that's true. I've, I've seen that too, just in kids. I've always, I've seen this consistently in various different countries um, with children. If you give them a stick and something circular, like whether it's a, you know, the, the thing out of a bike or something like that, they push along or it, I mean, the, the toys are very simple uh, and they're able to keep themselves uh, engaged with the simplest of things, whether it's a cardboard box or it's a stick or, you know, whatever that's found. Whereas I think our culture, yes, has become highly distracted. And so you need more and more things to keep kids engaged. And yes, I agree with you. There is um, a certain joy and simplicity um, to that. And it's not to, you know, I'm careful never to romanticize poverty, right? Right. Um, But I think there is um, something to be said for, again, the simple things in life that I think we have um, lost that connection to. And for a lot of kids these days, they don't have it initially because they're growing up with, you know, phones from a very early age. And I think that changes your brain. Yeah, I don't know scientifically whether it changes it, but it seems well, like it would. They are. I mean, um, there's certain places in the world that are banning cell phones for kids. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. That tells you a sort of a little bit about that. But so, so then you took, uh, after your time in Guatemala, you were in India, right? And you took mm-hmm. um, a course called Gandhi and Globalization. And that seemed yes. like a huge impact on the direction of your life. Yes, absolutely. And I think that was the turning point for me is I had spent a lot of time as an activist, right? So, and, and, you know, in the human rights field and the social justice field, because there's so much work for, to be done, right? And because there is so much social injustice in the world, you were constantly against things. You were constantly against what is happening, against a certain policy, trying to lobby the government for something more just. And so you burn out to an extent because you're just, you're, you're living in kind of this negative soup of, no, we don't want that. No, we have to stop this, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I burned out of that um, at a point in my life where, you know, there were a lot of things um, that were changing. I was in my late 20s and I was kind of reevaluating my life and I wanted to do something more positive. In the world, and uh, I had been interested in Gandhi and his whole approach to nonviolent protest, you know. Um, and when this topic cropped up um, and this opportunity to study in India, it just felt like it was just the right thing at the right time in terms of how do we address uh, these issues of globalization uh, and the poverty that we see in the world. Um, and how do we address that in a way uh, that seems like it's creating a positive solution rather than just saying, no, we don't want the world that we're creating. How do we create the world that we want? Uh, and and they still offer that course to this day. In fact, a student of mine that took a permaculture design course with me a couple of years ago, she just went to that same course and loved it. And uh, Vandana Shiva has this organic farm uh, in Dehradun, India, uh, called Navdanya. And the school is called Bija Vidyapit. 
and it's all around teaching people um, about um, food sovereignty, about uh, food democracy, about Gandhi and how his, you know, he advocated for village-based technologies. He advocated for relocalizing economies um, as a means to gain independence from the British. Um, but very much his approach back then is very much what we are starting to do now with the local food movement, with revitalizing our local economies um, in the communities in which we live. I love it. And I, I, I really just love the fact, I love the idea um, that we need to stop dwelling as activists overall. We need to mm-hmm, stop dwelling mm-hmm. on our problems and start looking for the solutions because it's really easy to start uh, once you get in that eyes wide open, uh, eyes mm-hmm. wide open living, you're looking around your, and you start seeing all of these things, mm-hmm. you know, that are, that are wrong. And, and then you start only focusing on that. And it's, it's time. It is totally time to evolve to that place where we just focus on the solutions and give all of our energy to the solutions. And so that was back in, I took that course back in 2003. Okay. Uh, and, and I think, that, you know, to get back to what you were saying, you can't tell somebody not to do something and not offer them another way. And right. I think that's, that is the problem with a lot of activism out there is, is you know standing up and saying no, what you're doing is wrong, but then not giving people an alternative to that. So you're shaming them, basically shaming them and saying what you're doing is wrong. It's awful. Stop doing it. Um, rather than coming from a more positive perspective of how about try this, you know, or saying you know I disagree with your approach, but how about this approach to 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 the to the to a solution you know and it's always you you know you win people over not through hate but through love right um not through excluding people but through include through inclusivity right uh and and i think that that's something that we're you know learning even now we're trying to wade through um the current political climate now too in terms of how best to approach um any kind of um, whether it be environmental crises or political crises or, or, or division, um, within a community or a country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, for example, um, when, when I first realized, uh, the whole GMO epidemic here in the U S I was, just, mm-hmm. I was just talking about GMOs nonstop, nonstop GMOs. Oh my gosh. Right, make, right. Sure, make sure you check mm-hmm. that bag that is not GMO. Mm-hmm. And everybody was just like right. pulling their heads. And I'm like, this is what GMOs are doing, you know? And, <laughs> and, then, and then one day I was like, wait, there's this whole group of people who are doing organic farming and sustainable farming mm-hmm. and micro farming. And I just need to talk about that because that is what right. will inspire people to, oh, really? That's cool. So that's a neighborhood farm here, right here that I can go pick my produce and then I don't even have to worry about it. You know, it's local and all that. I was like, oh, that feels so much better. (laughs) Yeah. This whole panic thing, you know, spreading panic Mm -hmm. flames everywhere. So so I really- Right. And it's, you know, it's the attitude that you bring towards it in terms of people need examples. 
mean, that's Wendell Berry talks a lot about that, is that we need good examples of what's going on, which is exactly what your podcast is about, right? Good, good examples of people doing good things in communities. We need more of that because our news is all about the bad things <laughs> that are going on in the world. There are countless good, exceptional things that are going on. We just don't see that. No, we don't remember that all the time um, because history is about, you know, all the wars and the conflict um, that have happened in this world. We don't we don't take a historical account of every amazing family and initiative that has happened in all these different communities um, uh, across the world. And so I think that's where we need to have more. We need to become like this podcast, a news source ourselves for good examples of what can happen. Because then once you create an example, people are more apt to follow. Uh, just talking theoretically about things doesn't usually instill in people or inspire people to do things. They like to see something and experience it and then go off and do the same in their lives. I agree. That's how I work. Definitely. Yes. So let's introduce my listeners to, uh, especially my listeners, listeners who haven't ever heard the word permaculture. What is permaculture? Yes. Yeah. So permaculture stands for permanent agriculture or permanent culture. Uh, and the, toy, the, the term was coined in the 1970s by two Australians. And basically, it's a design approach for sustainable living and land use that's rooted in the observation of natural systems. Um, so basically, permaculture gives you tools to, to positively design ourselves out of the current ecological crises that we face. It's all about design. And observation of natural systems is the directive. So we look at patterns in nature and we mimic them in the ways that we design our gardens, our properties, and our communities, and essentially our lives. Um, it's a hard term to understand. I, I think one of the things that, that prevents it from becoming more mainstream is actually the term permaculture. And a lot of people come to permaculture through organic gardening. Um, but permaculture is way, way more than that. Um, it couples both traditional and indigenous knowledge with modern science. Uh, and so you're using these ethics in permaculture and these principles in permaculture, and they're teaching you how to grow your own food and medicine. They're teaching you how to build natural homes. They're teaching you how to capture water. They're teaching you how to restore degraded landscapes. They're teaching you how to harness energy. And basically what permaculture is encouraging people to do or encourages people to do is to reconnect with their place, with the land, and with their food. You know, something that echoes throughout this house since I started studying permaculture is before we do anything, all of us are always saying long, thoughtful observation, right? So yes, yes. Before we do anything, it, and it's a great way to just sort of stop yourself and, and sit with whatever you, you're going to do, especially on your property. When you're going to mm -hmm. plant new trees, you, you, you connect to the property and you say, okay, so where would this tree thrive and where would it be working for the betterment of this property? What, what would it 
what do we want from this tree? And it just really makes you think about what you're doing a lot more than just buying a tree and coming home and planting it in the, you know, the space, the only space you have open or something. Protracted observation rather than long protracted and thoughtless actions. You know, so before just jumping in and doing something, you know, taking some time to observe where you're at. And that gets back to that whole reconnecting with your place, you know, your place, not only on this piece of land, but culturally your place in your larger community. And I don't think we do take enough time that, and that's that whole thing of slowing down. It gets back to that whole idea of slowing down of in this digital age of hyperstimulation, can you take a moment and sit quietly in your backyard and observe what's happening? You know, observe where the wind comes from, observe the microclimate, observe, uh, you know, where, where the sun is. Um, all of those things that basically are about being quieter and noticing, you know, noticing where you are um, in on your land and that bigger context of where you are uh, in your community. Um, and I think that is, we are an action-based culture, right? Do it and get it done, you know, rather than taking some time. And that's something that where permaculture applies both to your landscape, but to your inner landscape too, to your inner world. We have become so busy in our culture um, that we don't take a lot of time to be with ourselves and to observe how we're doing. Uh, and that's all connected. You know, when you reconnect to growing your own food, you understand that it takes time and that you need to pay attention to the weather and you need to pay attention to the soil uh, and you need to pay attention daily to what is going on around you and outside of you. Uh, and that's why all the world's problems can be solved in a garden, because when you start do that when you start to garden you start to pay more attention to those things and those essentially are the things that um connect us to this planet you know we often refer to nature as something that is separate from us that is out there you know i'm going to go be in nature but we are you know penny livingston stark who is a permaculture teacher you know, talks about we are nature working. You know, we are part of these natural systems. We have just become disconnected from them and forgotten that we are part of them. You say, and this goes back to everything you're just you're talking about, is that on a, on a community and global level, growing our own food and taking responsibility for ourselves are the best ways to com combat climate change and reduce our ecological footprint. It is a step out of the overwhelming problems and a step into the solution. And there, again, right. you're talking about the solution. And that's one thing I love about permaculture is it is sort of an invigorating approach because we're focusing on the solutions and creating prosperity right where we live mm -hmm. of, of uh, right. all everything that we need. And so can you sort of just talk a little bit about that? Right. So permaculture is all about, like I talked about, it's about bringing things back into scale, right? 
everything right now is out of scale. That's why we have these giant monocultures of an export crop, say, for example. That is not to scale for, for what we need. If we bring everything back into and scale, what, if we relocate... Why, yeah. why is the monoculture uh, not the scale we need? Well, one, because in a, in a monoculture, a vast expanse of a monoculture, if a disease hits, then that whole monoculture can be wiped out. Two, if we're looking to permaculture and mimicking natural systems, there are no monocultures in natural systems. There's a diversity in natural systems always. And that diversity gives you more resilience, right? So if you had more of a diverse cropping system, which is often called a polyculture, right, of different plants in one space, if one thing gets um, affected by disease, right, then there might be something else that will not be affected by that disease and might give you a yield that you can then sell, right? But in a monocrop system, not only are you um, clearing that land and putting in one single crop, uh, which has an effect on the soil, likely in an industrial agriculture system, you're also using chemicals which is destroying the microorganisms in the soil, um, which leads to a loss of topsoil. Uh, and then again, you're making that crop susceptible to disease. So for all those reasons, it is not a good approach, right? Whereas in a permaculture system, you're looking at smaller um, tracts of land, you know, or you're looking at your backyard uh, or your property and creating a system where you have diversity. So you're not growing all of one thing in one place. You have several different things growing that either um, some of which help repel pests, some attract beneficial insects, some are helping to build soil, and then some are giving you food. Um, and that is more of a natural ecological system um, where, you know, you don't go out and farm natural systems. You don't go out into a forest and the forest doesn't need someone to maintain it, right? It maintains itself because it has an inter, it's interconnected to everything else that's going on. Um, so I think this whole idea of taking responsibility for growing more of our own food, whether it's us doing it ourselves or our local growers doing it and us supporting them. You know, it's taking that responsibility, then investing more in local businesses, in our local economy, rather than in maybe corporations that, that take that money out of our communities. Um, it's reinvesting into that community and then getting involved by, say, growing our own food, by reinvesting in local economies, by creating a community where everyone cares about everyone else, right? You know, oftentimes these days, it's as if if you like your neighbors, you don't bother them, right? Right. Um, <laughs> like, if right. I'm being a good neighbor by never bothering you in any way. <laughs> you <know>? so, right, right. <laughs> Rather than, you know, it used to be that if you liked your neighbors, you know, you had them over and, yeah. and you relied on them in some way. And that, that has been happening, at least in Western culture, for quite some time. So permaculture is about recognizing all of those things, right? And relocalizing and designing. It's all about design, right? Consciously designing a life where 
where you are connected more to those things. You are connected more to what makes us human, uh, which is, you know, growing food, which is having friendships, which is taking care of family, um, which is creating um, community networks, um, all of those things that we have uh, lost because things have gotten out of scale. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you teach this, how, what do you tell your students? Like, what are some good ways to start increasing their in community involvement? Um, and just right. yeah. bringing more community into their life. Right. Well, you know, one, one of the first things, of course, you know, a lot of people come to me and, and take my workshops because they want to learn how to grow more food. I mean, that is one of the first and most concrete steps to take in terms of reducing your ecological footprint, right? In terms of, you know, they say that on average, food travels 1,500 miles from farm to table. Um, so if you can either grow more of your own food or support support a farmer, a local farmer that does that, you're already cutting down significantly on um, your fossil fuel dependence. Um, so that's one step. And I even think, you know, people get a little bit overwhelmed. They're like, well, I don't want to have a farm and it's just a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, you know? I get it. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> because, you know, it is, it is a lot of work. I think the beginning stages are a lot of work. You know, when you're first learning the the land and the the different uh, things that you're going to have to deal with, it is a lot of work, and there's no way to get around that. But there's this over, there's this drive, deep drive that is it's rewarding. At the same time, it's so rewarding to walk out there and see that you can pick all your own lettuce for all your salads. You know, and- right. And, 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 and so what you have to do, though, is you have to baby step people there, right? So when I recommend starting a garden, I recommend starting small. And again, that's one of the permaculture principles. You know, you're starting, you're using small and slow solutions. Don't start out with a 300 square foot garden. <laughs> you know, if, you, if you know nothing about gardening, don't start out with a 300 square foot garden. Like yes, it's making a lot of sense. Right? I could say this from personal experience because I sort of <laughs> skipped over that principle of like slow. <laughs> When I first learned about permaculture, I'm like, we are doing this. Like, you know, this whole acre is being, this whole acre we are farming today, right, right now. I have a plan. I designed my plan. <laughs> and that first year was really hard. And I'm still, and then I stopped because I was like, this is just, this is not fun, <laughs> you know? And, right. and now we're going right. small steps, but yeah, I just totally tried to jump in. And so that you know, jump in with a small box (laughs) and start small from my experience. Right. And that would be my recommendation. I mean, good on you for your enthusiasm. I think, you know, for for people who are really driven and want to do this, but for a lot of people, it's this tentative thing of like, I I think I want to do this. I know it's the right thing to do. I might, I want my kids to grow up with this connection to a garden. Uh, so what you want to start with, I always tell people, you know, better to have small successes than epic failures. And I think when we are becoming retrained as um, 
as agricultural workers, so to speak, right? And retrained as people who have a connection to land. We and we've been most often used to sitting in front of a computer. People don't understand how much work it actually takes and how much care it takes. And so I even say, you know, if you can start with a four by four foot by eight foot raised bed, awesome. Or if you want to start with two tomato plants in pots, that's great too. Whatever you want to do, but I want you to try to plant a seed in the ground or in a pot. And it's that act. It's not so much the yield that you're going to get. That comes later, right? But it's that act of taking that um, that initiative. And then what you want to work people towards is that um, amazing... Uh, uh, that amazing feeling that you get, like you described, of being able to make a salad with things that you grew exclusively. You know, that is an amazing feeling, right? Uh, but you can't get people there, you know, like that. Um, you have to kind of step it up. And it is like, these are things that my grandma did, that my mom did, right? But I didn't learn how to garden from my mom. Right? I had to go and learn it later because that understanding came to me later so this under this these these things that we're doing we're not too far away from them generationally um but we're just learning them in a different way we're you know people are taking workshops from me instead of learning it from their parents or their grandparents which is unfortunate it's interesting that you bring that up because i never really thought of that but that's exactly the the truth of the matter is that a lot of our grandparents were gardening and that was um, part of their mm-hmm. life, you know? So, um, yeah. And that was part of their and survival. What, yeah. And it was very much a part of their daily, you know, their, their daily um, tasks and chores. Um, and, and I think what happened is that industrial agriculture came along and made everything way, way more convenient. And I hardly blame it. My grandma had six children. She spent her life in the kitchen, basically, in the, <laughs> in the kitchen, in the garden, washing clothes, washing kids. You know, so when any of these conveniences came along, I don't blame her to have made her, you know, anything to make your life a little easier or to make your life um uh, where you have a little bit more time not doing those things is great. What has happened though, is we have become so far, we have gotten so far away from that. And that's the issue to the point where people don't understand where their food comes from. Um, they don't understand where milk comes from. They think that everything just comes from this grocery store and it's often prepackaged. And I think that's the, that's the issue that we have. Um, it is. Yes, absolutely. It is a ton of work, right? Um, but it's, it's this understanding of the, the value that you get out of it and the value of that type of work. And, um, uh, and again, that indescribable feeling that you get when you know, what you planted becomes a meal on your plate. And that's not something that, uh, unless you've experienced it, it's really hard to convey how wonderful a feeling it is. And it right? just tastes and better. That's, you know, it just tastes yes. better. 
Yeah. Once you get that yeah. taste, I'm, you know, when our season cut ends, I am just so mm. sad. I'm like, oh no, I have to buy my, you know, or like the lettuce. I have to go buy my lettuce. It's mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. process for me because it's like the taste is different. Yeah. And it's just different experience all the all well yeah I can't even I can't even I can't eat tomatoes from the I'm such a tomato snob because the ones in the grocery store of course are for the most part they're fairly tasteless because yeah. they're 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 not ripened typically on the vine and so they don't have that flavor that you get from a garden tomato and and it is trying to push more and more people towards those positive experiences of being able to taste a cherry tomato from their garden, right? It's that sensory experience that people have that will keep them connected to to doing something like gardening. And it's not that, you know, if you don't have land if and you can't have a garden, that's fine, if right? You balcony, it's trying to you can plant, you know, you can plant a box or a pot and um, that brings you just as much joy. It really does. Yeah. Exactly. And you can do that. And even if you can't, if you can't do that, then you can support others that do it. And that's oftentimes what I say is that, you know, if you find after a couple years of gardening that it's too much, because again, we're about design, right? Permaculture is about design, designing to your lifestyle. If you have two young kids and you have a full-time job and um, so does your significant other uh, and you don't have a lot of time and you realize that after a couple of years that it isn't, it, it, it's, it doesn't really fit into your lifestyle with everything else that's going on, then get a CSA share from a farmer, right? From a, a community supported agriculture share where you're getting a box of vegetables a week from a local farmer. Uh, those acts are significant uh, because you are making a difference economically. You are supporting that farmer. You are supporting the concept of community-supported agriculture. You are investing those dollars into that economy. Uh, And it's like a win-win-win. And you're getting delicious, homegrown, local, organically raised food. No. Um, and so it's just taking those small acts in your daily life that might be about you participating in the local food system in some way, whether it's by growing your own food or whether it's by supporting someone else that does. Um, and CSAs yeah. have grown so much in the last five years across the United States. It is phenomenal. So, I mean, this is something that is really uh, taking the nation with speed, this idea of eating local fresh produce. And it's really cool to look at the numbers and the growth happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's growing and, it, it, and so anything that we can do to make it grow quicker. You know, in Bozeman, for example, we have several farmers, of course, that that um, grow, but the shares in total, probably, I, I don't know exactly, but it's probably maybe a thousand shares at the most between all of the farmers. But you think about really Bozeman. Has 45. That's crazy. Yeah. That's really so, represent the rest of the nation when you look at all the numbers. That's interesting. Right. And, and, but there's so much room for growth, right? You have 45,000 people living in Bozeman, 
you know, that there are way, way more people that could be supporting those local farmers. And part of it is just outreach and awareness. And part part of it is it also is that we do have a huge farming community or or, uh, gardening community. Um, Yes. Gardening is a big thing in Bozeman. Well, gardening and farming, and this is this is where permaculture comes in around observation, right? Our culture is a culture of an agricultural community. And so it is actually, even though we're in a cold climate, it is fairly easy to do what's called a 100-mile diet. You know, I don't know, for those of your listeners who don't know what that is, but you're just trying to eat everything within 100 miles of where you live. But because we're an agricultural community, we have access to local cheese, to local beef, lamb, no goat, um, local jams, wheat, oils, all of those types of things. Though we live in a cold climate, we have access to all of that, not to mention the the vegetables, right? So, um, but that's that community. And the potatoes. We have tons and tons of potatoes <laughs> We're not wanting for potatoes, that's yeah, for sure. No. So, so I think w- that's a real resource that we have in our community, something to recognize in terms of um, culturally what's going on too. We have a big hunting culture too, right? So, but that doesn't necessarily translate to somewhere else. So if you live in the middle of LA, right, isn't an, well, I mean, there's agricultural areas close by, but if you live in a big city, right, how do you create a local food shed? You know, and, and, and that's where that whole concept of design comes in. If you do live in a big city, how do you design your life where you have more of a local food shed? That's what we're always working towards in permaculture is to design so that you have less and less dependence over time on outside input. You know, and, so, and I th- I also think that it's also designing that the long term to consider the long term of what every, you know every action. So, for we were talking about conveniences, how we on have all these great up. But for me, I'm always now with the knowledge of permaculture. I say, oh, that's really cool. That's a cool, you know, that's a cool invention or that's a cool mm-hmm. new technology, but I'm going to just observe it for a while and mm-hmm. see what the mm-hmm. long-term reach is because I don't know if it's good or if it's going to benefit us. Uh, because I think that's been, a, a, with our culture, we've just jumped up on every convenience and every new uh, invention. Like this is the very best thing. And that whole thought process of long, thoughtful observation, like, is this the best thing? Mm-hmm. What are the long term yeah. consequences to our society with this, if we implement this in every household? And that's something that I've really taken with me that um, affects every part of my life. And I feel like that's a really good thing for listeners to know that it's it's so much broader than and gardening and it's just the whole way that you you live so it's a lifestyle exactly it's absolutely i mean permaculture is a lifestyle design so it you know it only it not only applies to the landscape but it applies to how you live your life and that's when you know there's this initial interest in permaculture that people have 
probably because, you know, maybe they've recently purchased a piece of land or they're interested in gardening. And then as you study permaculture more and you go more deeply into it, you understand that many of the permaculture principles can apply to your life. So that first permaculture principle of observe and interact, not only on your landscape, but in your life or um, capturing and storing energy the permaculture principle of capturing sun and wind and rain, but also for yourself, you know, how do you capture and store energy in your life and and what do you do or self-regulate and accept feedback. So after you've observed, looking at whether in your case, those uh, particular new ideas or inventions actually work. And if they don't, you do something differently. If they do, you continue on. So the, the, the approach that you take in your garden is the same approach that you take in your life. And permaculture just gives you a framework within which to think about these concepts. And a lot of it is common sense. It's how you might live your life regularly. But sometimes I, it, it's helpful to have this framework of principles to live by because it just puts everything in, in that context. In that context. Mm-hmm. I love how you say the way you work in your garden is the way you live life. Right. That- and I think that's, that's the beauty of becoming, um, it's the, the beauty and the frustration of becoming a gardener <laughs> because it really really um the issues that you have in your life say for example for me i'm a perfectionist right so th- those issues come up and crop up in the garden as well around you know if something if you plant something and it doesn't grow then you kind of beat yourself out up about it but then it allows you also to work out those same things so i've i've now since i've been gardening for years now um i've learned to accept failure <laughs> Yes. Not to beat myself up about it and to understand, you know, that there are lessons in it. So, you know, as that applies to the garden, so should it apply to my life. And I think that those are those things of when you start to connect ecologically to, to, to um, an understanding of what's happening um, in your garden or and and forgive yourself for the failures that you might have in your garden it makes you uh, be more gentle with yourself and other uh, parts of your life. And, um, and it is a constant battle though. Uh, It's also that whole, if you're that type of personality that wants to jump in and get things done, um, this whole permaculture principle of being patient and observing will really um, uh, grate on you a little yes. bit, yes, right? Sorry. But then, then, it, but then, it teaches good lessons. It teaches very good yes. lessons because I, I move a lot slower now <laughs> out there. Yeah. I'm like, well, let's just think about this for a while, <laughs> for a long while. And, and, <laughs> and, and when, once you've like dug a hole and planted a tree and then decided, you know, you've learned the lesson that, oh, maybe I didn't want to put that tree there and you have to dig it back up again. Then yeah. you do learn those lessons. It's like, oh yes, it makes sense to um, be patient, to trust the process, and to understand that a lot of the work that is done now doesn't yield for several years. And the same can be said in your life, right? In terms of um, doing some kind of inner work, say that might not yield straight away, but over time 
um, you become a changed person. Uh, and, 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 you know, I think it's, it's that much more sweeter because of it. Like, for example, this year, this was our fifth season and I had planted a cherry tree and this is the first year that it yielded. And it was Woo! absolutely, I'm still yeah, waiting. it was absolutely I'm still gorgeous. Oh yeah. That's and, fabulous. And that's that, that's that, that, um, again, one of those things that you can't, um, you can't feel until you experience, if that makes sense, in terms of I planted that tree and it was a young bare root tree and I've seen that trunk grow and grow and grow. And then last year it just exploded in pink flowers and then it exploded in terms of having just a ton of cherries on it. And it was this amazing experience, right? You can't get that experience from any kind of um, device. (laughs) You can't get that experience from being on a computer or, you know, scrolling through social media. That is an experience that you can only get when you plant something with your own hands and then you're able to pick it. And you and you know, you're nurturing five you years know, later. You're nurturing exactly. you um complete complete abundance, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um so uh, this summer was pretty uh difficult for the world regarding natural disasters. Mm-hmm. And yeah. what it did to me is it brought me back to I'm I was sort of questioning why we're not implementing more permaculture uh principles because you know if just with like let's say the flooding in Houston mm-hmm. there's solutions mm-hmm. there can you sort of talk about how permaculture can be used to help um help the reduce these natural disasters um at least buffer them and reduce them and sort of mediate what's going right on yeah so i think you know Permaculture, like I said, can be applied at any scale from your yard and garden to um, acreage to 10 acres to your community, to your neighborhood. Um, If possible, it could be applied at a citywide scale. You know, the whole, um, the reality of that is obviously a lot more complicated, right? But, you know, some of the principles of permaculture around capturing and storing energy and around water. Um, capturing water. And um, a lot of it is about, say, for example, in cities, creating more impermeable um, or more permeable, I'm sorry, creating more permeable. That's a, I called surfaces. it sponge in one of my last interviews. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. 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 Right. Creating a city that is more of a sponge or that diverts the water and stores it in the soil rather than piping it away from places. You know, we're, we're a culture that. Uh, pipes it, caves it, and pollutes it rather than stores it um, and uh, sinks it and stores it in the ground. And I think by means of, you know, swale systems uh, that are on contour that um, can move that water into areas where you could grow vegetation that, of course, slows down water and allows that water to infiltrate into the soil are ways in which um, you can design um, for disaster. I mean, permaculture has a whole um, 
curriculum or a unit based on design for disaster. And a lot of it is around, you know, um, understanding, say, the potential volume of water that might come onto a site and how you can mitigate it, understanding your fire sector on a property so you understand where fire might come from and what um, what may might make you vulnerable to fire. Again, this comes back to these observation pieces. It's also understanding it's harmonizing with the patterns of the landscape. And that is what we haven't done oftentimes. So if you look at um, uh, situations where we put cities in, but we have put, say, in New Orleans, for example, where the city is below sea level, and we've put levees to kind of prevent natural systems from flooding that area. That was maybe not the best design, right? And, and then, then, of and course, you've taken out... Sorry, go on. No, no, I'm sorry for interrupting. But the New Orleans thing, it's been... Science has been talking about years and years and years before. And what happened is the wetlands. We were... Degrading yes, wetlands. exactly. The wetlands were protecting the land because they absorbed, yes. absorbed all the excess water. And so that, again, exactly. is a great example of nature and how nature alone designs great solutions. And so the whole idea of talking about permaculture and talking about the fact that we have these natural disasters is to inspire each of us to wherever mm-hmm. we, wherever we're living, wherever, you know, because our planet is coming to sort of this point where we're looking at more uh, concerns planetary wise. Mm-hmm. And so wherever we live, we can, we can start implementing these small things in just our, on our property or in our neighborhood. And that, and mm-hmm. we, there are solutions. There are solutions to where we are right now. And I just, mm-hmm. and, and, and part of that is looking at the permaculture principles. They're right there. And I think that that's, I mean, that again comes back to that observation piece of patterns in the landscape, really understanding where you are, really reconnecting to where you are, the people and the place, um, and uh, taking a relationship to it, right? Because that's, um, so you can make yourself resilient. You can make yourself and your property resilient, but you also want to, you know, extend that out to your network and to your neighbors and to the community that you're in. And we talk oftentimes in permaculture, it's not about self-sufficiency, right? It's about self-reliance. And the difference there is we don't want to be hermits on an off-grid home in the middle of nowhere, um, producing all of our own food and doing our own thing. We can do that if we want, but inherently human beings want to be connected to other human beings. And so that self-reliance principle is about, you don't have to produce everything, right? But through your connections with other people um, and through the community that we create within our town or the city in which we live, we create a resilient system. And that's what's going to take us through um, these fairly tumultuous times, right? is this network of connection that we have uh, bet- between all of our, between us, right? So not only in terms of maybe I can't grow tomatoes on my property because it's colder, but I know someone who does, right? And I barter my kale for their tomatoes. Um, 
anything like that where you can understand that you don't have to do everything yourself, right? And it forces us to connect more with other human beings. Uh, through my business, I hold, for example, I hold potlucks once a month during the growing season. And that's about coming together as a community of like-minded people who either love to garden or love uh, local food in some way. And it's connecting people that way. And during that time, I ask people to introduce themselves because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to have People make friends with one another more, you know, to know other people that they might not know in the community and to make connections with them. How can these, how can I help other people and how can they help me? Uh, and that is also something that we have to continue to cultivate more uh, because I think that is also something that we have lost. You say, I envision a world where community is created around growing food where we are value our farmers and land, where progress in our society is not measured by how much money we make or what we own, but by who we are and how we contribute in a meaningful way to the world. Mm-hmm. I yeah. love that. <laughs> I, I, I hope, you know, that is the hope. You know, we are playing the long game. And I think a lot of what we do, we will not see the fruit of um, what we do, but the the important thing is to take that next step. And I think some of those steps are so so easy because they are um, because they inherently make you happy, right? I never regret having a potluck <laughs> at my house and bringing people together, right? You know, yeah. you never regret having people come and bring food from their garden or bring food that they've prepared with their hands, right? And sharing that food. Um, and you always, I always feel uplifted because I know that some connections have been made that evening whether it was just in that moment or whether those are friendships and connections that will continue uh, for years, that is what, those are the simple things. You know, we can't, you know, people always say you can't take your, your money with you, right? At the end of this life, you will not remember, you know, how much money you made or how many material goods you um, accumulated. You will remember the very deep connections and relationships that you had with other people. Um, and that's what makes us human. And that's what gives us hope. And if we can do that at the same time as we are creating this community that's vibrant because we have this local food that's vibrant because we support our farmers, that's vibrant because we support local businesses and that people are involved uh, in shaping and in designing their community and their life. Um, that is what gives me hope. And that's what we want to, you know, invite more people to do. And I think, I think that, you know, uh, in a sense, we, we see a lot of it fruits of, of doing this. You know, we see these mm-hmm. movements growing across the country and it's phenomenal. When you start looking at it, it's just phenomenal how 
quickly um, these movements are spreading. And, and certainly in the younger generations too, I've been really impressed with the younger generations and how they seem to be awakened at a younger age to the importance of uh, being connected to the earth and respecting the earth. And, and um, the community thing, I really think we all need to work on because like you said, the what's happened in, and a lot of speakers have mentioned this is that the technology is fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. Mm-hmm. fabulous. But we're looking towards technology as as um, connection. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, so, but that we we're working on, and we're going to learn how to balance it in our lives. But um, every, you know, it's really been fabulous just to see the growth in just the last five years of, like I was saying, the CSAs and um, the amount, the decree, the amount of people that are members of CSAs nationally. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's so much progress. There is progress happening. Right. And, and I think that that in those moments where you see all the bad news, you forget um, (laughs) that there is, (laughs) right, right. And that, that is that intentionality too. that intentionality in designing a life where you constantly remind yourself too, of the good that is happening in the world. And, like you say, and it is, it's so much easier to attract people uh, to a cause and to change by doing something positive. You know, um, yeah. like come eat good food from the garden. Like yeah. who doesn't want to do that? <laughs> you know? And yeah. that's why I think there are more and more young people, right? Because it is, we all want to belong, right? To some sort of group, right? And that. Um, and that 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 group of people that grows their own food and eats healthy and whatever that is a very positive and uplifting um, cause to be a part of. Um, and so to continue and and whether it's that or whether it's art or whether it's poetry or whether it's you know however you want to create that community that kind of comes from uh, a place of positivity and of um, of acknowledging people, of engaging people in something that is um, more maybe tactile, um, that's that's not about social media or digital technology, um, that that is more about just um, human relationship. That is a positive thing. That is what is needed more in the world. I agree. And so what do you do every day that helps you? the best you. Woo. <laughs> yeah. That came out of nowhere, huh? <laughs> you should have told me. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I ask everyone. I ask everyone on the show. Um, I mean, with you, I would think it would have to be something with nature or outside possibly. Right. Well, you know, and, and it's, it's interesting because there is such a, um, you know, when you are a gardener, you're totally connected to the, to the pattern. So it changes, right. Throughout the season, right. Throughout the year, I should say, you know, in the, during the growing season, what I do every day is I'm out of out in the garden every day, you know, one, because I need to be, and two, because I want to be, um, because I want to be outdoors, 
And in the winter, it's a little bit different. You know, it is spending some time outdoors, but that's more of a time for introspection. Um, so I am, you know, reading more or um, planning more or looking at, you know, uh, you know, what I need to, what I need to be doing in my business. So it is this interesting. So I'm not to get back to what do I do every day? I'm not a regular meditator or, um, I don't have a regular say yoga practice or, or something like that, that reconnects me. I think that in the growing season, it is certainly, it's just, every day being out in the garden or every day having to feed the chickens or the ducks or something like that, that brings me back to um, where I need to be and what I am doing. Um, And it is this whole understanding, I think of, um, you know, every day trying to be connected to something that is growing. Um, that is what, um, you know, that's what takes you through and that's what brings you joy, you know, or the smell of, um, a tomato plant, uh, or, um, just looking like visually having your eyes see a sea of green lettuce growing, um, all of those types of things to try to reconnect to, um, what is important. In the wintertime, because we're in the middle of winter, I think I lose that thread sometimes in the wintertime because in Montana, at least, nothing, yeah, well, not much yeah. is growing. <laughs> yeah, it's and especially this year, you know, this winter has been a long yes. one. So what I do every day is shovel snow. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> As a way to reconnect. And that's like your meditation the outside. is shoveling. <laughs> right. No. right. And does that bring the question is does that bring zen? You know, that's shoveling the right. some days it can, but some days it might not. It brings up. Well, and I and I think that that is, you know, it, it again, it comes back to this, you know, I know we're going all sorts of places right now, but it comes back to this reconnection to its place, right? If I were to live in California, my life would look a lot different than it does in Montana, right? Because when you do have these very distinct four seasons in Montana and a very long winter, you have to design your lifestyle accordingly, you know, and understand that that is the time for introspection. What are you going to do more in that time frame? Um, last year, I started to paint more. I used to paint as a child quite a bit. And that's something that I would want to introduce more. And I understand that that might be something that I just do during the winter because I simply just don't have the time in the summer. So it's that ebb and flow of the seasons that when you are a gardener or a farmer, that's what happens. Um, Whereas if you have, say, a nine to five job indoors where you're connected to the computer, that doesn't happen as much, right? That ebb and flow of the seasons. Sure, it gets darker earlier or you have less daylight hours and you might um, design your outdoor activities or your exercise accordingly. But I found definitely, I've, I've come to learn that there is a pattern to what I do. So I do yoga in the winter, but I don't do it in the summer. You know, I will likely start painting more and writing more in the winter, but not in the summer. 
um, and understanding that 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 is how as it should be, you know, as it was with our ancestors around understanding that different things happen at different times, um, that it isn't, it isn't, um, so linear and it isn't so, um, it shouldn't be so structured, you know, springtime is crazy, (laughs) crazy making for me and my business. Um, then it slows down a little bit in July when things are just growing and everything is in. And then it picks up again during um, harvest season where we're preserving everything and um, freezing things and dehydrating things. And then once that's done, then hunting season comes and then we're butchering deer or elk and then we're putting that away. And so by the end of November, then finally, then December and January is in time to relax. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and I love it. I so, love it that, you know, you're, what, what to me, what it sounds like you're saying is that your connection and what you do to be the very best you is go with the flow, the, the ebb and flow of the seasons and be connected to the cycles of the earth where you live. Thank you for articulating that. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And I, um, I just love it. And I just, I want to say that, um, it's been so enjoyable to talk with you today and I've learned quite likewise, a bit. Teresa, and, um, we'll have to have you back on the show. Yes. I love, I love that you're doing this. I love the concept for your show and I wish you the best of luck. Um, and I look forward to, to listening. I'm Teresa Gabrielle, and you've been listening to the good with Teresa G. You can follow The Good with Teresa G on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you haven't yet, go to the Apple Podcast and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation. Thank you for listening.